Hey folks, happy holidays. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This is the final episode of 2021, and this is the second annual Wait 5 Minutes holiday special. Last year, we got some guests from the previous year's episodes together to celebrate the holidays, and this year is no different, because there is always something to be said about this time of year in Florida. I said it last year, I'll say it again, although it's been said many times, many ways, the holidays are weird in Florida. Snow doesn't fall, there's certainly no need for sleigh rides, and though we, myself included, bundle ourselves up in sweaters, we sweat through our skin just for a modicum of proper winter feelings. Florida experiences the holidays like nowhere else does. A Florida winter is its own unique brand. One of my recent favorite holiday memories, one I hope to recreate in years to come, is finding myself at the Night of Lights up in St. Augustine where whole city blocks are drenched in sparkling light, decorations of all variety to light up the holidays for two months from Thanksgiving to New Year's. Three years ago, my college roommates and myself wound up in St. Augustine at the exact time that this event was starting, and we found ourselves taking a ghost tour amidst holiday lights and Christmas trees. That's, that's a pretty typical St. Augustine evening, if you ask me. Last year, I was in the heart of the lights again, just after Thanksgiving, this time with my mom, after a fantastic dinner at the Columbia restaurant. Don't even get me started. It turned out everyone was there to see the lights that night, so we wound up getting to enjoy the decorations in St. Augustine from our car, moving at the speed of a snail through bumper-to-bumper traffic as everyone attempted to leave the city at the exact same time. It was chaos, but it was great. It took far longer than you'd expect, but I blasted the iconic Charlie Brown Christmas score as performed by the Vince Guaraldi trio. I mean, come on, that that's just a masterpiece. Oh, Tenenbaum, and that is maybe my favorite Christmas song. We smiled at passersby who were listening to our music pumping from the car. It was nice to be there together in the dark night of winter. This year, it so happened that all of my guests kind of wanted to talk about the same thing. Decorations, traditions, the familiar sights of the holidays that make us feel safe and cozy as the holidays take over our city blocks, our home decor, and our lives. Florida has an impact on the way that we celebrate the holidays, and it can seriously influence the way that we decorate. Our friend Laura Albritton, the writer and professor who chatted with this summer about the Rum Runners of Florida, has her own unique decorating tradition. How are you? How, how have you been? I'm doing very well. It's been a busy fall, but um, things have been, you know, pretty good. No complaints. How about you? I'm well. You finished your project about the, the, the movie that you were working on when last we talked. That is true. Adventures in History about a Florida Keys historian, Jerry Wilkinson, who is 93 and a marvel. Um, We completed that, and um, it's having its Keys premiere soon, and uh, it's going to be in some film festivals, so we're very excited about that, as well as a book, too. That's got to be pretty exciting. I mean, that's, that's a lot of stuff coming together all at once. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's it's been work, but it's been you know the kind of it's been like passion projects, very close to the heart. So, what was the book? You said you, you said you were finishing the book as well. Yes, this is a it's a pictorial history, so lots of archival images, and I did this with Jerry Wilkinson, um, historic lighthouses of the Florida Keys. Oh. So uh, yeah, it, that was that was a really wonderful 
project and that allowed me to learn a great deal. Lighthouses are lighthouses are so fascinating. There's so much right? to there's so much to unpack in all of them. I, I have to come down to the keys because when I went to the lighthouse, the the Florida Lighthouse uh, uh, Association, they most of them were like, have you been to the Keys to see the lighthouses? And I was like, I have not gone specifically for that. And they're like, you have to. You have to go see the Florida Keys lighthouses. Oh, my gosh. So anyway, to to, to what we had talked about, have you yes. put up your tree yet? I have put up my tree. And I have two trees. I have a Florida tree and then I have a kind of random ornaments from all over the place kind of tree. So I do, I do two. And the Florida one is this year and last year smaller but has a very beachy theme like I use aqua blue ribbon and I have all kinds of Florida-esque ornaments such as a manatee in a sweater wearing a Santa hat as well (laughs) a manatee in a sweater it's my favorite that is my that's that's the top of the list then I have like egret sea turtle dolphin I have souvenir ornaments to like a St. Augustine sailboat, a Key West beach chair. Um, I have a lighthouse, a Siesta Key lighthouse in Sarasota, from Sarasota. Um, But alligator, mermaids, flamingos, and then I have the Santas. So like I have a surfer Santa, I have a kayaking Santa, I have a Santa climbing a palm tree, you know, so I I go all out. (laughs) I, I, first of all, I have to say that that is a much more, when you said ribbon, my mind was like, oh, this is a very different kind of, this is a, this is a hardcore Christmas tree. Cause once you're putting ribbon, once you're putting garland like that on, that is a real decorating feat. Oh yeah. I'm, oh, well, my, my, one of my acquisitions last year was a new tree skirt. Okay. And I got, it is a nautical map of Key West and the surrounding waters oh printed on a tree skirt. No, I, I saw this on Etsy and I'm like, I must have that. <laughs> so, uh, so that, you know, it's really tricked out, but I'm always looking for the next, you know, the next ornament. Um, and when I travel around the state, um, you know, I love a good souvenir. And so Christmas ornaments are a fun way to kind of remember all the places that you go. I mean, you the, the variety of, of ornaments that you're talking about there are very funny. I, I also like the, to go back to the manatee with a sweater, I like the sort of, uh, I don't know if the creators of that are self-aware of the manatees avoiding cold water joke, because they do, they, you know, they hate That's cold true. Water. That's true. It, it, it is a, I mean, it's truly an adorable ornament and my husband and daughter gave it to me and I was like this is the best present ever I mean it just incorporates so many things you know and manatees are adorable and of course very very important to to us and to our ecology so right yeah I also like you know I I was a kid and there was a book that I had and I'm sure a lot of people have that Santa's Day Off did you ever know of this book it's it's those amazing do you know of this no 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 Tell me. Uh, so you can hardly find them anymore. The last time I found one was the last time my grandmother and I found one, they were selling for tons of money, but we still have our copy. And it's these beautiful, I want to say oil, oil paintings of Santa doing stuff on the, like, uh, the year when he's not doing something. Like, it's over the course of a year when he's not at his job at the North Pole. And the reason my grandmother bought it is because there are many 
tropical things that he's doing, including like oh. going shelling on the beach. So when you're talking about Santa going kayaking and Santa climbing a palm tree, all I could think about is the the idea that Santa leaves the North Pole and just kicks it in Florida on his off year. That is fabulous. That is, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And you know, when you grow up and as you did, right, in a place with yeah. palm trees and warm weather and it might, you might be wearing shorts on Christmas day because it's so warm outside. Like there's a little bit of, I don't know if you would call it cognitive dissonance or something between, <laughs> you know, the, the, the ornaments with the snow and the, you know, and all of that kind of cold weather culture. And then you go outside and it's like, boy, this has nothing to do with 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 my uh my reality so i do i do love having this uh you know like the tropical florida beachy beachy side of christmas so you know it's kind of like well if we're not going to have snow and uh what have you uh and fires you know then might as well just embrace it how long have you been doing the 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 florida tree how long have you been doing that gosh um probably about maybe close to nine years wow i had yeah i had moved away i had lived a bunch of places and moved away from florida and when i moved back um and moved to miami that's when i started doing the florida tree and also i had i realized like oh wow i have all these ornaments that i'm starting to accrue that do seem tropical and um you know instead of it seemed kind of weird to have like the traditional red and green ornament and then you have like Santa with the surfboard. So, so I thought, okay, we're gonna do a spinoff. We're gonna do a spinoff tree, <laughs> and uh, so that just gave me, um, you know, carte blanche to kind of go a little crazy. I, I the spinoff is such a funny word. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the sequel Christmas tree in the house. <laughs> exactly. I exactly. Uh, I hope that uh, I hope that next year it's just bigger and bigger. I hope that I hope that this is a project that the tree is just next year is just a little bit bigger and then it, every every successive years it's just as big as the regular tree. Oh, for sure it will be. I mean, it's become a little bit of a, an obsession, and my family doesn't totally understand it, but they I think they find it amusing and. Uh, they get a kick out of it. So for sure, it's going to continue. Our friend Max Chesnus, journalist for the Treasure Coast Palm, also has witnessed unique Florida Christmas trees, though not in their decoration, rather for their location. How are you, Max? Hey there, Nick. Hello. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you. How have you been? I, has it been cold down there? Uh, we've had a couple uh, a couple spouts of cold weather. Um, right now, it's a nice brisk 77. But uh, yeah, throughout the, the past couple months, but, well, actually probably the last month or so, we've had a couple nice weekends where it's been in the 60s. But can't complain. Just classic Florida winter here. I had a day where I was putting up my lights outside of my house. And it when I woke up, it was like 58 degrees. And I was like, oh better get ready so I like put on an undershirt put on my flannel over top and jeans and all this got ready to go second I stepped outside hotter than anything I was like it was, no. it was a it was a mid-June day yeah. how could it do this to me anyway we talked a little bit about this but but can you tell me about this this tradition of Christmas trees uh, out on the beach that you that you witnessed yeah so I I am a native of uh, Jupiter Florida and every year mid-December around this time when you go to the beach, there are residents, uh, anonymous residents, who will just pop up a Christmas tree on the middle of the beach. Um, 
at all of these random beach accesses throughout, uh, you know, like a four mile span. And so you'll walk onto the beach and you'll just be greeted with this random out of place Christmas tree in the middle of the sand. But what's, what's really cool about it, I mean, it's it's a nautical scene. So, you know, you have the, the starfish ornaments, sand dollar ornaments, and people will come and, you know, they'll either take trash that they've collected and make these trash art ornaments out of it. And it's just kind of a nice little, you know, it's something that I think is uniquely Florida because, you know, you don't go many places uh, where the ocean is just steps away and, and see a Christmas tree. It's a little out of place, but I think it's it's a cute little reminder that even in a tropical and subtropical climate like Florida, people can still get into the holiday spirit in their own kind of quirky and unique ways. Well, the fact that it was anonymous is fascinating to me. That the fact that people just did it and nobody knew who did it, and then everybody was just like, "All right, let's we're all we'll all participate in this," you know? Yeah, it's like it's cute. It's it's a it's a community and a town coming together to celebrate a holiday where you know, it, which traditionally uh, revolves around just community uh, outreach and community just camaraderie and so i think yeah seeing that is it's a nice little sign of hope too and obviously with a fun little florida twist of course naturally just just trees randomly left on a beach classic (laughs) yeah exactly max actually has an update that we wanted to share about the manatees that he and I talked about. You'll recall that the manatees of Florida have been starving because of a massive issue of not enough seagrass for them to eat. There is an update to the story that Max wanted to share with you. Uh, so you also mentioned that there's there's a bit of an update to our uh, with our manatees. How are they doing? Yeah, so the last time we spoke, which was... When was that? I know the was exact that? date. September? It was September 28th. It was September 28th. September 28th. So we were on the cusp of uh, surpassing a thousand manatee deaths. I think we were in the mid 900s when we last spoke. And, yeah. um, and since then, we have uh, surpassed that threshold. It's the first time Florida has seen over a thousand manatee deaths in a single year, um, which is um, an incredibly newsworthy story, I think, for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, just the gentle marine mascots of our state are are suffering in large numbers but um shortly after you and i spoke i did have another report that came out i was able to get some documents from uh fwc the florida fish and wildlife conservation commission it highlighted an august 2nd meeting that um, state and federal wildlife officials had with um, a couple manatee experts and nonprofits throughout the state and the topic was supplemental feeding um it was it was giving potentially giving manatees a food source this coming winter because uh, as you know if you've been keeping up with with the die-off uh, there is a, a lack of food uh, namely seagrass specifically in the Indian River Lagoon so they, they actually did an August 2nd workshop where they just weighed the pros and cons I mean is, is this a feasible task how would it look like if we wanted to feed wild manatees what would we feed them how do we have to relay that to the public because feeding manatees is illegal um, for the general public. So how would they grapple with this sort of change of, of policy? And so I wrote about all of that. Um, and and as winter is now upon us, and we're starting to see these cooler temperatures, uh, especially in the northern region of the Indian River Lagoon, the time is approaching when 
both state and federal officials will determine if they will go ahead and decide to seed manatees. Um, we've heard that it might be a, a pilot program uh, in Brevard County uh, where they sort of rope off an area um, away from the public and, and test what it might look like. You know, uh, how would they distribute the food? How much food are they distributing daily? So they're sort of testing water, so to speak. Um, <laughs> on what this program might <laughs> They're testing might. the water. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, it's all unfolding right now. The, the state officials last week told me a decision could be made soon. Um, they won't tell me if that's a day or, or a week or a month away. But I think as winter is, is really starting to... Uh, you know, enter full force as December ends and we enter January, we might see um, a decision on whether or not that'll happen. Winter is a very difficult time for manatees in general. They have very little body fat, so when the water around them starts to get colder, they need warmer water in order to be safe in order to not be freezing. So they seek out springs, places where there is warmer water than in the ocean. That's why in January you will see them up in the springs of Central Florida. I love to go and see them. I'll hopefully be doing that again this January or February. But Max tells me that a problem that we've discussed in the past is that manatees like to go to places where there is warm water and sometimes they don't really know whether that's a spring or a spot where there is a warm water output from say a plant of some kind. This puts them in more danger and can lead to further risks. It's something that I'm, I'm paying uh, acute attention to as Floridians kind of enter the holiday season and if people are out on boats, um, you know, I caution them to be careful because manatees are on the move and, uh, you know, keep an eye out for our, our lovely sea potatoes. <laughs> well, I was going to say <laughs> sea potatoes. I was going to say like that all of those things, not, not to be extremely saccharine but they are that 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 is so floridian of them that they if if people don't already know about manatees don't already know that they can't stand the cold and need warm spaces i mean that's just the most floridian in in winter response is i gotta be somewhere (laughs) that's not like this but i also think that it's a it's you know obviously it's an essential thing but you can't not see a holiday comparison when we're talking about basically giving food to creatures that need it it's that that that's that's obviously important but it's it's also nice in a sense to be like okay all right that's that's that that's our holiday gifts to the manatees is is trying to keep them around (laughs) yeah exactly and you know manatees really are truly a floridian animal i mean who else uh you know seeks warmer weather when it dips below 68 degrees um but but yeah, no, I think uh, the, the feeding decision is, uh, you know, well, well, I think the general public reads about it. They go, well, obviously, I mean, we have a problem. They're starving and we need to feed them. So it's a no brainer. But I think the biologist perspective is uh, is way more complex than that. I mean, if you, give, if you give these animals food, you're changing their behavior. They might expect to, uh, you know, get a get a free meal every time they arrive to a certain uh, certain location and so there's a lot of, of really complex variables that they weigh with this decision and while it might seem on its face like it's a, a no-brainer i think there is a lot of work going into what it might look like so right well we'll just have to keep following your reporting on it max yeah I appreciate it. Thank, <laughs> thank you thanks for coming on happy holidays
You too. Merry Christmas to you, and I uh, hope you and all of your family and, and listeners are uh, having a healthy holiday. You as well, man. The day that Max and I recorded this chat, the day, it was made official. The state of Florida approved a plan to feed the manatees in order to prevent their starvation. Romaine lettuce would be handed out to our, as Max called them, potatoes. <laughs> if that's not a true holiday gift, I don't know what is. That's the very least we could do for them at this time of year. Sometimes nature can be a good way to get away from the world, especially at Christmas time. As Michelle Nyhouse, author of Beloved Beasts, told me, that was an all too familiar tradition for one scientist back in the early part of the 20th century. He actually would spend his winters with the roseate spoonbills. Happy holidays, Merry Christmas, nice to see you. Happy holidays to you. You mentioned that there was a story about this, this, this scientist that you wanted to share. Can you tell me his name and a little bit about him? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Robert Porter Allen is not so well known today, but he, he had a storied 30 year career in ornithology from about the 1930s to the early 1960s. And, and if he's known in the in the birding world today, it's for his his role finding the the breeding habitat of the whooping crane in Canada. But he actually spent most of his life in the Florida Keys, and one of his first research projects was on the roseate spoonbill. His research was really important. He was so persistent and so willing to go the extra mile to figure out what these animals he was so curious about were up to. But what I really love about him is he was also a delightful writer and a great storyteller. And he, uh, so he wrote two popular books about his work and including one just on the roseate spoonbill. And his story is about uh, hanging out on these isolated keys, trying to figure out what the roseate spoonbill was up to are so charming and funny because he introduces this emotion that I think is missing in so many, <laughs> so many accounts of the natural world these days. And that is exasperation. <laughs> he, <laughs> like he, irritation I, at the behavior of the yes, birds. <laughs> I, I mean, we're so, so much of writing about other species these days is, is reverent and, and understandably so, because I think, you know, we're much more aware of how, how, you know, the damage we've done to these species and how fragile they actually are. And, and Bob Allen was certainly aware of of how rare the spoonbill was and and how much humans had done to to persecute it. But but he also just had this very well developed sense of of how fraught the relationships between humans and other species are, and how how you know there's there's really just like shared exasperation and irritation on both sides anytime that <laughs> we try to have a sustained interaction with other species. So. He wanted to figure out whether the roseate spoonbill was still breeding at all in Florida. It had been it had been persecuted by plume hunters for the last previous few decades. Um, it had once been quite common in especially in South Florida. And by the time he went to Florida in 1939, there was only one breeding colony that was thought to exist. And so and the problem with finding out more about it was that it was roseate spoonbills breed in the winter and and to protect themselves from from people and other animals and and winter winds they they breed in the middle of these mangrove thickets so they're very and they're very shy birds you know if they if they 
sense a threat, they'll, they'll abandon their colony. Yeah, they'll take off and they won't come back. So he quickly figured out that he really had to live like a spoonbill in order to find out what was going on. And... <laughs> And that and course, you're, this sounds like a dream for me already. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a dream and a nightmare for him. <laughs> and for every, you know, I think for anyone who is interested in unusual species, like he he was really, you know, dedicated to his work and in, in all of his projects, but but <laughs> also admitted that there were times when, that were not that fun. And I, I'll, if it's okay, I'll read a, a short paragraph um, from his first of his memories of one of his first nights on the on the key he says when i first set up camp on bottle point key i found my surroundings unaccountably weird i harbored a strange impulse to look behind me it was as though i were being watched by eyes that were outside the human pale the tangled roots the dense curtain of dully shining leaves the hard brittle barrier of dead branches these together created a strong and uncomfortable sense of the unknown, even of danger. Among the shallow pools at the lower end of the key, I became lost during those first weeks behind walls of glistening mangrove leaves and sprawling tentacle-like roots. The soft mud sucked at my feet and legs as if trying to pull me under, and I wondered if some of these holes might not be bottomless. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the first well. night... The what a wonderful night. winter vacation he's taking. Exactly, exactly. And he, I mean, he had done, his previous work had been done on Long Island in, in New York. So um, a very different kind of environment he's entering. And in the first night on the key, or at least one of the first nights, he's he's sleeping in his tent. He's eating a dinner out of cans. Um, he cuddles up in his Eiderdown quilt and and almost immediately hears this enormous roar outside of his tent <laughs> and he says my instinct was to throw the covers over my head and plug my ears and, <laughs> and he goes through all this you know I love that it, I love that it kind of reads like he got stuck there like he didn't yeah. choose to be out there he chose right, right. to do this right you kind of lose sight of the fact that he's uh, there you know and he's actually not that far from <laughs> from Key Largo, you know, but he could, uh, yeah, he stuck it out out there and, and he, so he hears this huge roar and he doesn't know what it is. And, and after a few minutes, he hears it again, a little further away. And, and the, you know, his inner scientist kind of wakes up and says, oh my God, that must be a crocodile. <laughs> and which, you know, they're a little more common now than they used to be, but pretty rare. And, uh, and he goes outside the tent and, and the next day and looks at the tracks and realizes yeah for sure it was a crocodile and oh his colleagues God. then make all kinds of fun of him saying it was a crocodile and and when they come to visit him finally they they hear it too and realize oh my god <laughs> it really was a crocodile oh that's so, so good so he, so how long yeah. was he doing this how long did he how how much time did he spend up well, he spent a couple solid winters there, you know, on the key and, and he had rules for himself. He, I mean, he had it. He was a family guy. <laughs> he and his wife had a long and happy marriage full of mutual understanding, which I think involved uh, her mutual understanding, her understanding that he was going to spend some time in the winter with birds. 
<laughs> and her understand and his understanding that she was going to stay in Key Largo with her piano. She was a classically trained <laughs> pianist. <laughs> she and and their kids, you know, were at home, and he he would he would go back fairly frequently. But he had a rule for himself that if he found himself talking to himself for more than one day, if it went on to two days in a row, he would go to shore. <laughs> but his book, his book is full of like little, little limericks he wrote because he was bored. Um, here, I'll read you one, a little verse. A, bo- a man stuck on an island of the most fascinating bird, the most beautiful bird is going <laughs> mildly, mildly hysterical and is writing poems. He's writing poems here. He says, hey, the, I won't, I won't. Uh, torture you with all the stanzas, but here's the first one. Please, I love this. I don't wish to be didactic, but there's something enigmatic in the little game the pink bird plays with time. So I've cast my lot with his un in this mangrove studded prison, and I'm looking for the reason and the rhyme. (laughs) So he, I mean, you know, at the same time, so he's very funny. um, And but at the same time, he's he's besotted with these birds. I mean, they are beautiful. And he described, he's a great description of them where he says, the spoonbill exhibits paradoxical glamour and drollery. So, you know, they're these beautiful pink birds, often mistaken for flamingos. They have shorter necks though. Um, and, but they, they also, so they, you know, from a distance, they look really majestic. But if you get up close, they have these kind of, funny they're, they're named for their bills the spoon-shaped bills that don't quite close and they use them like salad tongs you know to pick up invertebrates in the water and they and they have these really weird croaky calls you know kind of inelegant calls so so he just was he just loved both their awkwardness and their beauty and and because of his persistence he did finally after several a couple of you know win, full-time winters and then several years of study afterwards figured out that um, the birds, which had been, as I said, mostly driven out by plume hunters, once the Migratory Bird Treaty Act passed in 1918, hunters were no longer bothering these birds and slowly, took a while because they are so shy, but slowly young migrants kind of coming up from South America started to revisit South South Florida and slowly, slowly they began to repopulate. So toward the end of his life, he revisited, he wrote a review of what had happened to the population, you know, over the, over the previous decades. And he, when he started the work, there were only 15 breeding pairs he estimated in Florida, but by 1963, just before his death, there were more than 250 now there are 1,100 breeding Yeah, there's a spoonbiller everywhere. So yeah, so it was really, I mean, this was a species we almost lost. And thanks to activists with the Audubon Society and researchers um, who, you know, went to the trouble, went to the, the both the delight and suffering of, you know, hanging out in these isolated places, living like these birds, thanks to their work. It's 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 a real conservation success story, and we don't have very many of those. And on top of that, it's I mean, it's a true relatable winter holiday scenario of sometimes you just have to endure stuff. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. This is true. I mean, you for know, the greater I good assume, for the greater good. For the greater good, sometimes you just have to endure. I have a sense of Bob Allen that uh, he, you know, 
I bet he went home for Christmas. I bet he went to Key Largo for Christmas, but I doubt that uh, a giant crowd of extended family was really his cup of tea. <laughs> so I think he might have, there There might have been times when he preferred life on the island to um, a traditional uh, Christmas uh, at a, you know, at a, at a long table full of nosy relatives. <laughs> I mean, the company of spoonbills and crocodiles, like I said, often exasper exasperating, but uh, humans can be exasperating too. So <laughs> you take your pick. And last, but certainly not least, before we go, I had this guest on six times over the course of basically a year. But you have not heard from her at all in 2021. That is simply because she has been working on projects, I have been working on projects, and we have been working on a project together. But I could not let 2021 pass without hearing from your friend and mine, journalist for the Tampa Bay Times, the great Gabrielle Khaleesi. She has an article that she recently wrote about Christmas time in Florida, and she wanted to share some of the things that she discovered in that story. Hello, happy holidays. Happy holidays. Tell me about this story that you worked on. So I wanted to do a story on how weird it is to celebrate Christmas in Florida because so you you grew up here. You only know Florida Christmas is your default. That's just Christmas. And then everything else is like Christmas of movies and Christmas of, of visits, you know? Have you been to, like, have you had a white Christmas? I had a white New Year's Eve like okay. a in, no. in North Carolina when I was like 15, 14 or 15. I've never had a white Christmas. Okay. Um, well, that's okay. Cause that's not what the story is about, but like, we're, I feel like you're kind of like the flipped version. But uh, if, if you're a person that has grown up in the North or a, a different climate, that's not sweaty, swampy Florida, um, it's a very weird thing to come here and all of a sudden it's like, this does not feel like Christmas. Like we have, obviously Florida has its own sort of form of seasons and its own like rhythm that it, it has. And we can tell that there's a passage of time. It's just like less obvious. And so, so many people have been moving to Florida. I think they say like a thousand a day. And just in talking with like colleagues from the times who have moved here a year or two ago and are like, this is still weird talking with my boyfriend, who's like, it's only his second Florida Christmas, just, you know, all this stuff has reminded me of when we first moved to Florida. And I don't think that my parents have gotten used to it yet. And we've been here like more than half my life at this point. So it's just like a very strange thing. You know, we don't have like the same traditions that other people have for celebrating, but there is like a a Florida Christmas spirit that is all its own. And it's kind of a little bit goofy. And I think in some ways we overcompensate for not having like seasonal changes and, you know, other kind of things that other folks have. You said overcompensating, which is a word that I hadn't considered, but that, that feels right. Like it definitely feels like we really do Florida to us. We do Christmas in Florida to a certain degree because we are overcompensating for the fact that we don't have the usual trappings right. of the Christmas that we see. I mean, like the whole joke, I just rewatched White Christmas, which I watch every year, but like the whole joke in White Christmas is that they're like, how are we supposed to celebrate Christmas when it's not snowing? And they also start in Florida. The first major scene of that movie is in Florida. And they're like, well, we gotta get up to Vermont because that's where it's snowy. And then they get there, it's not snowing. And they're like, 
what are we gonna do? I can guarantee that like even a snowless Vermont is more Christmassy than like the coldest Florida. So what did what were some things that stood out to you in, in talking to people? What were some some traditions or 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 thoughts about holidays in Florida that stood out to you while you were making this piece? Well, I think the first thing is like kind of getting to the bottom of like why does it feel so weird? Um, and so with that, it's it really comes down to like we don't have a lead up to Christmas. Like we don't have a crisp fall. We don't have a Halloween where we're not sweating. Then you know you get to December and. Yeah, like we've had some cold sweater days, but then like last weekend, uh, you know, it was 80 degrees. I think it's 80 degrees today. Like that's ridiculous. I, my living room is filled with like wrapping paper. I should be cold outside in, in theory. So there's that. And then there's also just like, you know, you go outside, it's so bright. It's like you're baking, you're moist. And then you look down and instead of snow on the ground, you have these tiny lizards and it just like, it feels weird to see things like the Christmas lights that are strung around palm trees. Then there's also just like standard Christmas practices that we have to adapt, like Santa Claus. We don't have chimneys oftentimes. How does he get inside? You this have to get really thing. creative. The Santa Claus movie adapted that lore for me as a child. I was like, I don't have a the chimney and then they were like he just goes down the pipe and I was like got it <laughs> I accept that that's canon for me now thank you thank you to Santa Claus do you are there traditions of of that transition for you I mean you were a kid coming to Florida and celebrating the holidays in Florida is there a tradition that your family has developed holiday wise that that really sticks sticks out to you whether that's Florida related or not we used to do this thing and I'm trying to bring it back we would make like a happy birthday Jesus cake and it was like a poke cake. So you bake like a yellow, like Duncan Hines box cake, and then you poke it a bunch, and then you pour in a bunch of jello that you've not like set, but just like, you know, when you're like making jello that first step and you have like jello soup, and you pour that onto the cake, and then you bake the cake, and then we put like Cool Whip on top, and then it was a happy birthday Jesus cake. I have, I have never heard of a poke, I've never heard of a poke cake. Yeah, it's just a cake that you poke a bunch and then pour some on. It's great. I you love should. this. Yeah, but I mean, we're like, I celebrate often with my mom's side of the family and that's the Lebanese side. So mostly we just are eating like hummus and grape leaves and like sort of doing our own thing with that. That is another thing too that I don't think people think about a lot. This is not a Florida thing, but like culturally people have different things for the holidays. Like it is a very long uh, Italian tradition on Christmas Eve to eat fishes instead of traditional hams or turkeys or things like that. So. That's still a thing that we try to do at least a little bit of. And the thing that my grandmother makes me do, and if you've never had this, my grandmother's tradition that she makes us do, that's an Italian tradition, is she makes us take a bite of raw fennel. Have you ever had raw fennel? No. It's tastes like, it's a vegetable, but it tastes like licorice. And so Ooh. you have to take it like black licorice. So you have to take a bite of it and then literally just go, just spit it up because it's so gross. But it's like a New Year, Christmas, New Year tradition. We have to do it every year and I have to do it every year. Okay, catch me this holiday season biting into raw fennel. Is there any other story from this that, or from detail that did you want to share? Yes, hit me. Yes, uh, there's special events that I feel like are kind of those like only in Florida things. Um, and those are the way that we do our Christmas parades. I mean, golf cart parades where you decorate 
your golf carts with tinsel and I don't know, you just put a bunch of stuff on it. Uh, that's one. Uh, and then boat parades. We have so many boat parades and Tampa Bay especially does a lot of these. I mean, like this year with the Super Bowl and hockey and like all of our Tampa Bay, like sports victories or whatever, but also just for, I think pride. And then like the nature of just Gasparilla, like we just love to get on a boat and have a parade. I think the biggest thing that like the, the readers that I interviewed said were just like, you, you have to find ways to enjoy yourself here and not worry about what you're missing. So there was one guy who, you know, he had grown up in Los Angeles, but he lived in New York. And so he, he had experienced both types of Christmases. And when he moved to Ocala and met his wife, you know, she was newer to Florida as well. And it really didn't matter like what they had done before because they kind of made their own new tradition. She's Puerto Rican. And so they, uh, you know, were really into drinking Coquito and they like moved the Christmas tree out of the way and they just like make their living room a dance floor. And they just, you know, that's their tradition that they've made. Or, you know, other people to contrast that, they just say, well, we're gonna lean into Florida. We're gonna make our relatives in the North jealous. We're gonna grill, we're gonna go to the pool. Um, and then another thing that I thought was really funny was people who have fireplaces and they're like, one time a year, I'm just gonna crank my air conditioner and then I'm gonna make a fire and I'm gonna pretend. So I think you can pick in Florida whether or not you want to like create an illusion for yourself or whether you're just gonna accept it. But either way, as long as you're just like with the people that you care about and you're you're trying to have a good time, I, I think you can't go wrong. I think, it, I think it really is like finding the comfort for yourself, no matter what that is. Even if it's even if it's a little over the top, even if it's a little artificial, like as long as you're finding that comfort in the holidays which is what it's all about i mean that's that's it that's that's that's, that's the whole point right i've been thinking a lot about the fact that everybody wanted to write about decorations because i decorated my house last year and i decorated again this year but one of the things that is most surreal for me about decorating a house, listen, not to toot my own horn, I did a pretty good job. It's it's beautiful. It looks great. But one of the things that always trips me out a little bit about Christmas lights is they're not for you. They're not for me. I mean, they're not for me in my house. I certainly put up the lights and I love that they're there and I look at them when I go out for drives at night and I come back and see the lights. It makes me very happy and I'll go out and take pictures when I put them up and things like that, but like, I'm not the one who sees them more than anything. The people who see them are my neighbors. And the same goes for their lights. I see their lights. I love their lights. I'll go for extended drives when I get home to go look at their holiday lights because I love it. It makes me so happy. We don't need to do it. And many people don't, but the fact that people put up lights on their house the house that they are inside of, they aren't seeing the lights. They're doing it for each other. You know, I said this last year and I'll probably say it every year because it's my favorite thing about the holidays. The reason that human beings started celebrating holidays at this time of year, the winter solstice, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, the reason that we started making holidays that are about literally light, warmth, fire, is because this was the darkest time of year. The night came early and lasted longer than it ever did at any other time of year. It was cold and dark. And what did we do? We gathered around 
light and comfort and warmth and community. And, you know, people will say whatever they want about holiday lights, but for me, in a time when community sometimes can put us away from one another, we can be in our own bubbles all the time, the lights that we put up at the holidays are a way of reaching out, of saying, hey, I I know that you were the person who gets to see this, not just me, you. You can see my lights. You can see the warmth. And we are sharing that together. Because that is what celebrating the holidays of winter is all about. It is using the lights to find our way out of the darkness. Thank you for listening to this episode. Thank you for listening to this season of episodes. It has meant the world to me. This entire year of stories has been just unbelievable. Follow the show on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, WFM pod. You can see some photos and I'll try to post some things from this past year to sort of remember all the wonderful stories we got to tell. But the most important thing you need to do is go follow the people featured in this episode. Laura Albritton, Michelle Nyehouse, Max Chesnes, Gabrielle Khaleesi. They are doing the good work in the world. The journalism, the writing. They are making the world a better place by the things that they are doing. All of the people that I got to talk to this year make the world a better place. And I am so grateful. I am so comforted by their presence. I, uh... I hope to have some more chats with a lot of them next year as well. Speaking of next year, I will see you February 7th. I'll see you there. I'm certainly going to miss you, but hopefully you won't miss me too much. There's lots of stories for you to go back and listen to. Until then, have a very happy holiday. Have a very happy new year. Be kind to yourself. It's an imaginary line between December 31st, 2021 and January 1st, 2022, but it means something to a lot of people. And if it means something to you, make it count, make space for the person you want to be. I know I will be. All right. I will see you in February. Happy holidays. Happy new year. Be good to yourself. Be good to others now more than ever. And of course, drink more water. I'll see you in February.